President Trump is in a very weak legal position in these cases. It's really kind of a last-ditch effort, in my view, to make a constitutional claim against congressional authority to investigate uh, with regard to his taxes. Many of these issues have come up for many administrations, and there have been a lot of assertions of executive authority that I think Congress has been weak in pushing back against, and maybe the uh, the way that Trump is doing it will finally cause Congress to stand up. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. A subpoena is a writ issued by a government agency, most often a court, to compel testimony by a witness or production of evidence under penalty for failure to comply. In recent months, with the release of the redacted Mueller report, Congress has used its power to subpoena certain individuals and companies connected to the Trump administration, the Trump organization, and the Mueller report as they seek additional evidence. Some subpoenas have been ignored, where others have been blocked or put on hold litigation. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss the reach of congressional subpoena power, executive privilege, recent litigation and decisions, and whether President Trump can use executive privilege to block congressional subpoenas. So here to discuss today's topic is returning guest Stephen Schwinn. He is the professor of law at the John Marshall Law School in Chicago. He teaches, writes, and talks about issues related to constitutional law, comparative constitutional law, and human rights. He also co-edits the Constitutional Law Prof blog and is a frequent media commentator on the Constitution, the courts, and politics. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Steve. Well, thanks so much for having me, Craig. And our next guest is attorney Michael Stern. He specializes in legal issues affecting Congress, including congressional ethics, elections, investigations, and lobbying. He served as senior counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives from 1996 to 2004. He later served as Deputy Staff Director for Investigations for the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs and Special Counsel for the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. You can also check out his blog, Point of Order, at pointoforder.com. Well, Michael, let's start with you. Can you give us a kind of description of how congressional subpoena power works, where it comes from in the Constitution, and how it's been used in the past? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the Constitution does not explicitly uh, refer to congressional subpoena power, but it has long been recognized that both houses of Congress have the power to call for witnesses and documents for matters that fall within their constitutional responsibilities. And since the very beginning of the Republic, both the House and Senate have utilized that power to issue subpoenas and uh, require witnesses 
to appear before their committees. Uh, both houses have rules that delegate to their committees the power to issue subpoenas. It depends on the committee whether the subpoena can be issued unilaterally by the chairman or needs to be voted on by the full committee. But in, in pretty much every committee in Congress has the power to uh, issue subpoenas and require witnesses to attend and documents to be provided. There is also a criminal statute which was passed in the mid-19th century, which makes it a crime to willfully refuse to comply with a congressional subpoena. The problem comes when the Congress tries to use its power to seek information from the executive branch because, of course, the power to prosecute people under that criminal statute rests with the Justice Department and ultimately, which ultimately reports to the president. So the longstanding position of the executive branch is that if the president asserts an official privilege, such as executive privilege, and directs his subordinates not to comply with the congressional subpoena, that cannot constitute a criminal contempt under the statute. And therefore, the executive branch will not bring that matter to a grand jury for prosecution. This presents a problem when a committee wants to try to enforce its subpoenas against the president or his subordinates. Well, Michael, we're here in the in the situation where we have uh, Congress issuing two uh, subpoenas recently to McGahn and to Barr. Uh, Stephen, what's the circumstances here, and how well is the executive privilege going to be respected? So executive privilege is one of the pushbacks that we're seeing from the Trump administration, but there are others in these cases as well. When a committee in Congress issues a subpoena and the uh, the president or an executive officer doesn't want to comply, they have a, a number of different options, and we've seen the Trump administration use really all of these different options. Asserting executive privilege is one of those, but there are some other things that we've seen asserted against the congressional inquiries as well. So, for example, one of the things that we see the Trump administration asserting time and time again in these cases is making a claim that Congress doesn't have a legitimate legislative purpose in making the request that it's making. The Trump administration has also asserted separation of powers and uh, claimed more or less that Congress is encroaching on the executive's enforcement power, that what Congress is doing really isn't investigating or engaging in oversight, but instead really is trying to enforce the law. And then we've seen some privacy claims as well. As to executive privilege, the Trump administration has, in my view, really asserted a kind of breathtaking and sweeping version of executive privilege where it said everything is privileged and uh, it's kind of categorical, you can't even testify kind of privilege and claiming that that has roots in uh, in the executive privilege, which uh, again is is a kind of sweeping uh, kind of claim that is uh, that the Trump administration is is using to withhold witnesses entirely from testimony. Well, Michael, what's the possibility here of, of Congress holding these people in contempt? And if the Justice Department won't enforce it, how do they go about uh, contempt proceedings? Well, that is a uh, the second one is a is a is a naughty question. 
In terms of the first one, uh, actually moving forward with contempt, of course, the Judiciary Committee has already voted to hold uh, Attorney General Barr in contempt. Now, that's just the first part of the process. The committee then has to send a report to the floor of the House, and the House would have to vote on the contempt report to adopt it. Then it can send that under the statute to the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. But as I mentioned earlier, nothing is likely to happen with that. It also has the option of authorizing the committee to bring a civil enforcement action in federal court. Now, there's no explicit statutory process for that, but there have been a couple of cases where the House has brought such enforcement actions and it has had some success in getting the courts at least to hear those claims. So the most likely route for the House to enforce its subpoenas against executive branch officials would be to bring a civil enforcement action and ask a federal judge to declare that the subpoena recipient is required to comply with the subpoena that the Congress issued. So we've seen a couple of those already. We've had congressional subpoenas issued to Wells Fargo and Deutsche Bank, and now one to the Mazars accounting firm for a hearing. How do those turn out? What, what's the generic way of how that happens? Is Justice Department prosecuting Congress's subpoenas on, on behalf of Congress and against President Trump? Well, those are different. So those were subpoenas that were issued to private third parties, right? Two banks in the New York case and then an accounting firm in the case that was brought in D.C. Now, those third parties said that they would comply with the congressional subpoena if nothing else happened. So what happened was President Trump, not in his capacity as president, but as a private individual and his companies brought suit against those third parties to have the court order them not to comply with the congressional subpoena. Those cases do not involve any executive privilege. Basically, the theory that the Trump organization is going on is one that Steve mentioned earlier, which is simply that there's no legitimate legislative purpose for the subpoenas, that they are simply uh, unrelated to any uh, legitimate interest that Congress has and therefore should be declared invalid. That is a much, much more difficult claim to make than asserting executive privilege, in which case the court would have to balance the interests of the two branches against each other. Here, the President Trump, as a private individual, is saying that really Congress has no business investigating these matters at all. And the courts tend to be very deferential to Congress in that situation. So in both those cases, the district court rejected uh, the argument brought, uh, the argument made by the plaintiffs, by the Trump organization, and those cases are now going to be appealed. But uh, it's a it's a much more difficult argument for the uh, to, to make on behalf of the anti-subpoena uh, party. Craig, uh, could I just jump in on that? 
So these cases are, are different in another way. Michael's summary was excellent of those cases, but these cases are unusual in that they involve a federal statute that requires, and this is mandatory language, requires the Internal Revenue Service to turn over tax records when requested by certain committee chairs in Congress. And, and the committee chairs requested the records in Congress pursuant to this statute. And so by a plain reading of the statute, the Internal Revenue Service has an obligation to turn over Trump's taxes to them. That puts President Trump in an unusual position. And what he's done in these cases is he's actually sued. He brought the suit affirmatively against the third party to stop them from turning over the records and asserted, as Michael summarized uh, quite well, that Congress lacks a legitimate legislative purpose in, uh, in requesting these records. The reason that he had to argue that they lack a legitimate legislative purpose is because he really didn't have any other arguments at that point. He didn't have an executive privilege argument. He doesn't have anything like an absolute privilege or separation of powers argument. Really, all he has at that point is to argue that Congress lacks a legitimate legislative purpose. And as Michael said, I entirely agree. That's a very, very weak argument. What's the merits of that? I mean, what are what are what is Trump saying is a legitimate legislative purpose? Why is he saying that uh, Congress can't do what it's trying to attempt in this case? Right, that's a really good question. So, start with the idea that Congress has the power to investigate and oversee essentially anything that it has the power to legislate on under Article 1, Section 8. And its powers under Article 1, Section 8 are pretty broad, which means that its powers to investigate and to oversee are also pretty broad. What the Supreme Court has said in a couple of cases is that Congress has the power to investigate and to oversee anything that could lead to legislation, which again really is anything in congressional authority under the Constitution. And the Supreme Court has said that means uh, means quite a lot. It means really almost anything that Congress says that it means. And so to that extent, President Trump is in a very weak legal position in these cases. He just really, um, it's, it's really kind of a last-ditch effort, in my view, to make a constitutional claim against congressional authority to investigate uh, with regard to his taxes. Do you think a selective prosecution claim would have had more merit? I mean, what Trump is basically saying is, you know, you're picking on me because I've gotten, you know, apparently gotten away or the Mueller report has exonerated me or whatever, however you come out on that. Trump is basically saying it's not legitimate because I haven't been accused of anything or, or there had nothing been proven. I guess he's had a lot of accusations, just not a lot of proof. I think what he's saying is that Congress isn't really trying to legislate when it seeks President Trump's taxes, especially taxes for tax years before he became president. That instead what Congress is trying to do, and this, this I think is a really kind of interesting and curious argument, what Congress is trying to do is play politics, and playing politics is not a legitimate legislative purpose. And again, I think in some ways that argument reveals just how weak this position is as a legal matter. Michael, what's your thought? I would just add, uh, yeah, I think that what Trump's argument is in these cases and, and actually what they involve are his financial records, his bank records and accounting ta uh, statements of his uh, accounting condition by his accounting firm. He's basically arguing that 
you can't, you don't have the right to enforce the law against me. You can't investigate me just because you think I violated the law at some time in my life. And that is not a proper legislative purpose. The committees pushed back and argued that these requests are relevant to potential legislation that they might adopt, for example, relating to financial disclosure by the president um, and other officials. That is, if it turns out that the president has been untruthful in prior financial disclosures, and perhaps that will indicate he has not been uh, truthful in his current financial dis- government financial disclosures, that may be a reason, for example, for tightening up the laws on uh, on financial disclosure. They also argue that it's relevant to uh, the potential foreign emoluments and uh, financial conflicts of interest. So in the in the DC case, uh, the judge found all of those to be plausible uh, legislative interests, and he declined to consider whether there's any political motivation, basically saying, look, courts don't get into what the actual motives of the committee may be. They just look at the uh, official record and determine whether the information sought could be pertinent to a legislative purpose. And that was satisfied here. Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and we are joined by returning guest Stephen D. Schwinn. He's the professor of law at John Marshall Law School in Chicago, and Michael Stern, who specializes in legal issues affecting Congress, including congressional ethics, elections, investigations, and lobbying. We've been discussing congressional subpoena power and executive privilege. And Stephen, right before the break, I know you wanted to get a word in. Well, no, actually, I was just going to say that when I described those cases earlier, I had a kind of brain fart. I was confusing those cases with a different case where Congress is requesting information from the Internal Revenue Service. And Michael is exactly correct in his description of those two cases, that what's going on in those cases is the committee is seeking financial records uh, from Mazur's Trump's accountant and Deutsche Bank, Trump's bank, about President Trump, and President Trump has asserted the legal claims that that we've both described. Well, Michael, we've had President Trump claim that Congress is playing politics by investigating him, and and certainly uh, there were people in Congress who have argued that Trump is guilty of the same thing, saying that he is essentially going to task the Justice Department to investigate his enemies or the people that have criticized him, not to turn our discussion away from the subpoena power, but what power exists either in in the executive branch or in the congressional branch to throttle the politics of the other branch? Well, I don't think that they can really throttle the politics of the of the other branch. They can uh, point out a good deal of the dialogue in Washington has uh, consists of people accusing other people of playing 
playing politics. And sometimes you wonder what the point is, since they're all politicians. It seems rather self-evident that to some extent they're playing politics. Uh, and it's really, in some ways, is more of a rhetorical tick than an actual uh, substantive argument when they accuse each other of that. That's probably the most accurate description I've ever heard of that. Well, how do the branches of government balance their power here? Is it really, Steve, is it the judicial branch that weighs in and solves the problems in these disputes between the two? Is that really the only only place where they can both turn to get a resolution? Not necessarily. And indeed, the judicial branch, the courts, have been reluctant to intervene in these kinds of disputes between the White House and Congress. What the courts have tended to do, with a couple of exceptions, the courts have tended to kind of take a step back, encourage the parties to informally resolve their differences, and come up with some sort of compromise position. So, for example, a White House official or administration official might testify in a closed hearing where nobody can take notes, um, and maybe there are no congressional aides or something like that as a compromise position in order to maintain the executive's need for secrecy on the one hand, but Congress's need for information on the other. I completely agree with that. And I think it's very important to understand that Congress has to be very careful in how it goes to court and seeks judicial assistance, as perhaps it would have been wise for uh, President Trump's private lawyers to have been a little more uh, cautious before they went to court. But the the courts are unlikely to just start ordering the executive branch to produce all every piece of information that the House wants. They have to sort of pick their battles uh, based on the specific facts, how important the information is, the strength of the party's legal position in that dispute. For example, with the Mueller report, the committee, the Judiciary Committee has subpoenaed not only the report, but all of the underlying documents, which are like 1.4 million pages of documents. There's just no way a court is going to be able to go through that in any kind of time period that's going to be useful for Congress. So they're going to have to be selective and careful about which of those disputes they present for judicial resolution. And Craig, I think Michael raises a a really important point, particularly in today's politics. When you have both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue entrenching themselves in really hard positions, you know, Congress requesting kind of everything, and the Trump administration saying, "We're, we're not going to reply to anything. Those are really tough positions and don't bode well in the courts. Judges don't like to see parties take those kinds of hardline positions, and it's really not the way the Constitution is designed. If the Trump administration, for example, is asserting executive privilege, the way that's supposed to work is on an evidence-by-evidence basis. So, for example, if a witness is called before a congressional committee, it's not supposed to work that the Trump administration simply instructs the witness not to attend. Instead, the witness would attend, and then on a question-by-question basis or a document-by-document request basis, assert executive privilege, and then the court has something to kind of sink its teeth into in a more concrete kind of way. But when we see both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue adopting these really extraordinary 
extreme and hard positions, it's it's really tough for the courts to deal with that. Does this put us in, a, as many people have said, in a constitutional crisis, or is this something that is typical of politics and we've seen before with Nixon and Clinton and previous presidents? Steve, where do you come out on that? I, I'm not prepared to say that we're yet in a constitutional crisis. I do think that for speaking for myself, I think the Trump administration and President Trump has adopted some constitutional positions that are extraordinary and historically, we might say, cutting edge, pushing the envelope. It's not clear to me yet that they're outside of constitutional boundaries, although they've pushed really, really hard. And I will say, Craig, our separation of powers system, really our checks and balances system, depends on that kind of aggressive overreach, but it also depends on the other branches pushing back. And so when the president makes these kinds of sweeping constitutional claims, we trust that Congress and the courts are going to push back with the same sort of energy and vigor and uh, and check the president. That's the way our system is supposed to work. Michael, do you see that working? I do. I do not think this is a constitutional crisis. I would not describe it that way. I think you probably need to make some distinction between the statements that the president makes and what his departments and agencies actually do. Certainly, the president has made statements that one could characterize as rejecting all legitimacy of congressional oversight. I don't think that the Justice Department has gone that far in what they have what they have said. There's obviously some tension between the way that the president likes to operate and the way that the Justice Department and other agencies of government understand that they're supposed to operate. So the and, and how do how do we take that? I mean, let me interrupt you for just a second because that's a question I've I've had for a long, long time. How is it that we take President Trump when he tweets and he goes off on, you know, what can only be described as tangents and outside the constitutional statements? How are we supposed to react to that? I mean, do we take what he says as as an edict, or are we supposed to take it with a grain of salt and then turn and listen to what the actual Justice Department says or one of his more well-reasoned advisors after they've had a day or two to think about what President Trump has said? Who do we believe here? Well, I think that is basically the question that Congress has to answer, because really, I think in some ways, that's the question that the that volume two of the Mueller report raises, right? The president, in many cases, told his advisors to do things that they clearly shouldn't be doing. And in many cases, they just said, nope, we're not doing that. And so Congress has to, or the House at this point, has to look at that and say, well, is that evidence of a president who simply is incapable or unwilling to fulfill his constitutional responsibilities? Or is it just kind of an unorthodox guy who says a lot of stuff, but isn't really that harmful because he's got people around him who uh, will rein him in and prevent him from doing anything too damaging? And I mean, that kind of is the issue, I think, that the House has to wrestle with. Uh, I have my personal opinions on that, but uh, that really is what it comes down to. And in some sense, these informational struggles with the executive branch 
sort of uh, reenact those same issues with the president saying things and then his subordinates have to decide whether they're going to try to translate that into an official position that they can assert in court or whether they're going to walk that back and and say something else. And, and when they end up in court, if they do, they're going to have a bit of a problem, um, as they have in other cases, trying to explain the discrepancies between what the president said and the position that they're taking before the court. It does really seem that uh, volume two of the Mueller report is a but for uh, the subordinates, there would have been obstruction of justice. It, at least that's how I've read it. Well, gentlemen, it looks like we've reached through the end of our program. At this time, we'd like to take a moment to invite both Michael and Steve to share their final thoughts and their contact information. So, Steve, let's turn it over to you first. Sure. So, first, uh, Steve Schwen, my contact information is by email, S-S-C-H-W-I-N-N at J-M-L-S dot E-D-U. And I guess in terms of final thoughts, what I would say is the Trump administration has really been extraordinary in the way that it has uh, pushed back against congressional inquiries. And time will tell as to how that all works out in the end. But as I had mentioned earlier, our system really depends on the other branches pushing back with the same kind of energy and vigor that we've seen from the Trump administration. And so I'm hoping that both Congress and the courts will play their roles. Great. Thank you. And Michael? My name is uh, Michael Stern. Uh, You can reach me on Twitter at at MLS1776 or uh, at www.pointoforder.com. Uh, I would just emphasize, well, I, I agree with uh, what he said about the Trump administration, but I would also point out that many of these issues have come up for many administrations, and there have been a lot of assertions of executive authority that I think Congress has been weak in pushing back against, and maybe the uh, the way that Trump is doing it will finally cause uh, Congress to stand up and and assert its uh, institutional prerogatives. I I certainly hope so. Great. Well, thank you very much. We've enjoyed speaking with both uh, Stephen Schwinn and Michael Stern. We've reached the end of our program. At this time, we'd like to have you rate us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com when you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.